Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, Stucky here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back to a very special History of Everything podcast, one that is actually brought to you by our producer of this podcast, James Lopez, who has been kind enough to create a truly massive story here for you all today. Now, it is myself and my wife who are presenting it, but a lot of the work, and by a lot, I mean all of the work that went into this, other than the tangents that I have, that came directly from James. So James, thank you very much. What you have done here is simply magical. Wow. Yes, I know. I know it's a bad pun. I understand that it's a very bad pun because we're talking about Harry Houdini today. You already have probably seen it from the description, from the title, from any of that. We're talking about a name that for the most of people, when they're looking at magic, this is something that is instantly recognizable. This is a representation of an entire medium of art. A lot of people might have a bit of a question. Why is it that Houdini is still relevant today? What is the actual story of Houdini? Why do we still talk about him a century after he died? And what, of course, makes it so that this one guy is the representation of an entire form of entertainment? Also, where does the name Houdini come from anyway? All of these questions and more are things that we're going to be answering here today because it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit of an epic journey. I say a little bit, there's nothing little about the story that I'm going to be talking about today. It is very, very extensive, but it is the story of an immigrant child who became a legend and performed to the greatest trick of all, becoming culturally immortal. Truthfully, I don't know if there will ever be a time in which Houdini is not a reference to magic, in which that will fall out of practice. I'm very curious to see what language and references would look like two to three hundred years from now when people are talking about things. Because we don't necessarily mention nearly as much in terms of forms of entertainment from stuff from, say, 300 years ago now. So I don't know how long it will last, but in the age of the internet, who knows? So to begin the story of Houdini, we have to go all the way back to the kingdom of Hungary, specifically to the capital city of Budapest. There in the year 1874, there was a man by the name of Rabbi Mayor Samuel Weiss and his wife, Cecilia Steiner, who would welcome into the new world a newborn baby boy that they would name Eric. Now, supposedly the thing with this child is that it never really cried and it would oftentimes stare at things in fascination, wanting to know how it is that they worked. It was a baby that was constantly curious about the world. Did he just have a higher IQ than everyone else? I mean, I guess so. But the thing is, you know how children naturally are drawn to specific things like you've seen what happens with our own daughter and Joya and the things that she particularly likes. She loves messing with things, specifically with her hands. And her habit and creation is that she is a perfectionist, that it has to be perfect or she won't do it. True. Whereas other children are like, I'm going to keep on doing this one specific thing in order to try and figure it out. And that, I guess, was Houdini. 
Though at the time, of course, he's not actually Houdini. This is little baby Eric. So in addition to his father being a rabbinical lawyer, Mayor Samuel also dealt in side projects, things like soap making, among other different side jobs, because that's what people did at the time. Hell, as you've said before here, Gabby, even with the pandemic nowadays, people are always looking for some kind of side gig in with order the to bring recession, in. Well, actually. True. I was in a meeting at work like a few months ago and everybody was like, oh, my God, I need to get out of this meeting because I have to go to my next job. And I'm like, what do you mean? And that's when I realized like it is a lot more people here. are now having to do these things. Yep. Because, you know, we got paid a decent like we got paid pretty well. So, yeah. But even with people that I think what was it, the statistic, there are um, a, a good percentage of people who have like six figure income that are still paycheck to paycheck because of it. Yeah, because 100,000 is the new um, 50,000 or something like that. 70,000 It's not a lot of money anymore, which is crazy because, you know, for years, everyone's like, I make 100K. And they were like wealthy, driving cool cars and living in big houses. And I was like, yeah, now, depending on the area that you are. Oh, congratulations. That doesn't even qualify you for a basic mortgage, considering the 7% interest rate and all the other crap that's going on in the United States right now. Literally. Oh, no, it's absolute like, madness. You know how your car is like from 2009? Yeah. If you tried to buy a new car now, it would not even be worth it. In fact, this car you might have overpaid for it last year. Um, but luckily you bought it five years ago. But just the used car market was a bubble. Yes. Which is crazy. How did we let that happen? How do you let, how does that happen? That's a good question. Anyway, I'm not an just, economist. we just went off on <laughs> economy. No, but it's an easy thing for people to rant. And I'm sure that anyone listening to this right now can definitely relate. Hopefully, while they're on their way to their job and then thinking about what we're talking about in terms of terrible things for an economy. Sorry for that. Sorry jarring. to bring you down. Yeah, no, the economy is overwhelming. We were just looking at what the GDP. Yeah, we were just looking <laughs> at the GDP to debt ratio, which it's not looking great. And now I'm like, oh, should I study economics so I can help fix this? But like, really, what can I do? Fair, fair. So in the case of Samuel Weiss, his side gig and what he was doing was, as I said, being a soap maker and traveling salesman for that. Like, you know, he'd go around and sell his little soaps. And one of the trips that he had for this was to America. And there, Samuel fell in love with the country. He loved it, sensing more opportunities there and also a new home in Appleton, Wisconsin. So returning back to his homeland, and when Eric was four years old, they all ended up immigrating to Appleton, there where Mayor Samuel would obtain employment as a rabbi for a local population of German-speaking Jewish people from various parts of Europe. You see, the good rabbi and his wife barely spoke English, just like a lot of first-generation immigrants at the time, and because of this, the rabbis in the community ended up serving congregations based not on their nationality, but rather by which language they predominantly spoke back in the old country, regardless of whatever country that may be. Which is a very interesting thing, because people in Europe, you'd have cases where people would speak multiple languages, especially in places like Eastern Europe, where it could be more intermixed among specific groups, but then not speak English. So it could be German, it could be Polish, it could be Romanian, it could be any number of these other languages, and people would specifically congregate around areas where even when their nationality was different, they would know a specific language that they would be able to communicate with one another and not have to learn English. It's why you would see these communities with Chinatown, Germantown, uh, Koreatown, all these different things where people would congregate in the same area to speak their specific language and not anything else. Now, in the case of the, this family and the Weiss family, they ended up changing their name to more of the German style in order to suit things with this new congregation. 
And the Weiss family, which before had been W-E-I-S-Z, now changed it to W-E-I-S-S, which essentially would still be pronounced the same thing. And Eric would be then E-R-I-K to change to E-H-R-I-C-H. And later, this would uh, evolve into Eri, which eventually would then become the more American version, Harry. So it's Eric, Eric, Eri, Harry. So, and that's how his name changed over time. That's really funny because, you know, where when I'm at work, everybody calls me Gabby. And then yes. somebody looked at me and they're like, what's your actual name? Like your name where you're from? Because, you know, my name is not Gabby. I'm yes. not going to say my real name on here. But it's just really funny how we all just choose like the more American. Where I'm from, they give kind of like a more cultural name, basically. Yeah, because your then, father was French Haitian. Right. And then your other name, like your middle name is going to be like the more like regular name, I guess. So kids yeah. can pick their names. That's the thing. We always give like two names. You'll have like the name that they want to name you and the name that would be more useful wherever you go. Yeah. So it's like a nickname, but something that everyone uses pretty much rather than just friends or family. Which I love because then it gives a certain level of um, privacy. Interesting. Oh, that makes sense. That does make sense. So in this case, that's how his name would evolve. And it's, it's kind of funny because, of course, how how it changes here over time. You could pretty much look at this and go, ah, yes, later in life. Don't worry. You're a wizard, Harry. I hate that thing. Don't, don't, no, don't hate it. Don't hate it. It's, it's perfectly fine <laughs> and legitimate. It's perfectly fine and legitimate. But either way, you all know that I am a man that loves context. I love background. I love how things ended up getting built together. And we kind of need to explain about that whole thing with the Jewish community and how all of that ended up getting built up here. Back between the 1870s and the 1920s, the Jewish population in the United States exploded. It skyrocketed. Over the course of something along the lines of 50 years, nearly 3 million Jewish people immigrated to the United States, predominantly at this time from Eastern Europe, because in Eastern Europe, things were not exactly the best for them. There was a lot of discrimination, and people knew that if they stayed there in the old country, that they were likely to live, well, more of a life of poverty. But in America, well, there's a number of quotes about the opportunity that is there, and one of these goes, quote, why did I go to America? Well, one can answer that question in just a few words, because things were bad for me and hardship drove me to leave my old home. It's just that simple. That's everybody. Why do you think I'm here? Yeah, that's pretty much how things are for a lot of people that were just trying to escape. I'm genuinely curious how many people move to the U.S. because things are going great for them. Like, who's doing it? The only ones that I can think of are the super ultra wealthy that are trying to buy a property, like in the case of Chinese or Russian uh, or other Mongolian, like, like, like your friend's family. Yeah, yeah, they're exactly. super rich, but they were like, oh, we'll just move to the U.S. to see what it has to offer. So I guess some people, but the majority of people were like, oh, everything sucks. So we're here now where it still kind of sucks, but in a different way. And it's more manageable. Yay. And they have more control over their own lives. Literally. There's so much opportunity. Yep. Which is crazy because I know a lot of people who are in the U.S. are like, oh, no, there's not so much. But there's so much opportunity. Yep. In comparison. Correct. And so back in Appleton, Wisconsin, where a few years things are starting to go OK for the Weiss family. It's going all right. They live on Appleton Street in an area that is known now as Houdini Plaza. And on June 6th of 1882, the immigration records show that Mayor Samuel Weiss then became an American citizen, something that he should be proud of. But unfortunately, it didn't end up actually working out for him. Not the concept of being an American, but rather he never really learned to be an American and speak English in the first place. See, the good rabbi was a bit of a product of an age gone by. 
He was a man who really struggled to change and adapt as the rest of the world did and refused to conduct any of his services in English. Like he just would not learn. He would not utilize it. And this ended up being so bad that a younger, more dynamic rabbi ended up replacing him, which resulted in him losing his job at the Zion Reform Jewish congregation in late 1882. Rabbi Weiss then had to pick up his family and move back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where they would suffer through poverty for a time and just struggle. Around this time, Harry had discovered magic that same year at the age of eight, and he was starting to become mesmerized by the performance of a number of different magicians, including the beginning with English magician by the name of Dr. Lin. See, from that point on, life just wasn't really the same for young Harry. It started at seven or eight, where he fell in love with the circus, and back in those days, if you were young and independent and you wanted to rebel and you wanted to run away and become famous, the way that people thought that you would do that was you would leave off to join the circus. The modern day is the people who would run away or quit their job or do something in order to become like a social media influencer or star, except this one simultaneously involves more elephants. So the young Harry took a very adept interest into athletics, acrobatics, anything that he could do to build up his own skills. He would try and gain these skills in order to join the circus. And until he was old enough to join one, he would train immensely and try and bring the circus to people with his own acts. Like as an example, one of the things that he would do is he would, um, he would set up things in his backyards where he would don a long like set of long red wooden stockings and then perform acrobatic and trapeze tricks, calling himself Eric, Prince of the Air. Was he good? I mean, he probably was, considering that he was managing to charge people $5 for an entrance fee, which doesn't sound like much, but you have to remember that at the time that this is, in the 1800s going into the 1900s, we're talking about the equivalent of today, 32 bucks a ticket, which for a, like, 9 or 10-year-old to be charging people $30 for something like that? Oh, he was making bank. Literally an entrepreneur. Yeah, exactly. I don't know exactly how successful he was with it, but he still did it for a time. He never received an education past the third grade, and he resorted to various different jobs like that in order to try and support his family. How is it legal back then to not go to school past Child the third grade? Child care laws were very different, and people simultaneously had to work in order to support their family. It, it was also very different for those that were poor. Oftentimes, stuff just ended up not being reported in many cases to the state, and their, the records were very bad. Oh, you don't have to go to school if they don't know you exist. Yeah, and simultaneously, what you would end up seeing is that I think, I think the, a lot of the, the big child care laws were not actually put in place until going into the early 1900s. I'd assume it was right when they were trying to do all of the reforms for welfare yeah, exactly. and for prisons and for... Just general daily life, libraries, you name it. But libraries existed way before. Oh, they did. They did. But I guess public libraries in the sense of like anybody can access. I think a lot of the big developments that you ended up seeing were, and I could be completely wrong on this. I am completely talking out as an educated guest from what I think I remember studying from United States reforms. The biggest reforms in the United States occurred from like 1900 going into like the early 1920s. That's where you started to see things. So the 1890s, it's right before that, mind you. But that still means it's right before it. We so should things do aren't something on public school at some point. Oh, the evolution could. of the public school in the United States. Oh, yeah. Public education. It's a, it's a very specific thing, but that could actually be quite fascinating. 
I, I completely agree with that. So, eventually, when he is 11, he and his father end up going to New York City themselves in order to try and work and save up money and send it back to the family. They lived in a boarding house on East 79th Street in Manhattan, and there young Eric would work as a shoeshine boy, messenger boy, a paper boy, pretty much anything that he could do in order to earn money. He was even a tie cutter at a local factory called H. Richter's Sons, where he would run a sewing stand with his father. And there, he would meet a fellow tie cutter by the name of Jacob Hyman, and they would become friends. Question. Yes. What is a tie cutter? A tie cutter, if I recall correctly, is the one who would be preparing the actual lengths of stuff for a tie. You know how a tie is not just a big singular piece of cloth, how it has folds in on itself. Like when you look at the underside, how it has a little gap and whatnot, where it's all sewn together in that little triangle at the top. I have never looked at a tie closely. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Well, I mean, it is the thing that a man would be wearing, but on the underside of a tie, it has, it's not just a singular like piece. It's not like you could take a piece of a bolt of cloth and just tie that around your neck or anything. It has specific sews that gives it its shape. So a tie cutter would be a person that would be preparing the specific tie. Interesting. Otherwise, you could probably just take a pair of scissors and cut out a tie yourself, but that would probably look horrible. Probably would. So yeah, that's what they were doing. And at the time, he had just read something called The Memoirs of Jean-Eugène Robert uh, Houdin, which is, uh, I know I'm butchering the pronunciation, but it's this famous French magician whose name I would look at it off the top of my head and I would say, oh yeah, that says Houdin. No, it was more like Houdin or Houdin in French, which again, I know I'm probably butchering, but he read the book of this guy and became enamored with it. And he ended up sharing this passion with Jacob and they decided, hey, we're going to go and we're going to become magicians together. After reading Robert Houdin's memories or memories, his memoirs, Eric then began to idolize this man. And he devoted himself specifically to becoming the greatest human specimen he possibly could, as the book told him to do. So it was at this time that he began to develop his body even further. He had started since he was eight to really work on those trapeze acts and the different stuff for conditioning. But this really ramped up for him around the age of 11 or 12. He would do things like running five miles a day every day around the nearby Central Park. He would do various sets of physical exercises daily in order to build up his toughness and stamina, his endurance, his power. He would practice walking tightropes and swinging on the trapeze. He would work on tumbling. He would do things like hanging from tree branches in order to strengthen his legs. And he even trained himself to hold his breath for over three minutes at this young age, which is quite a while to be able to do. He was preparing for life on the road and as a star. And despite the fact that once he was a young man, he was still short, we're talking only like five foot five, which is not necessarily too short at this time, since I think the average height for a man would be more along the lines of, say, five foot seven. So under average, but not too far under average. I was taller than I am taller than Houdini. Gabby, you're taller than the majority of everyone nowadays is. Well, not everyone, but the majority of people are taller than people from back then. In the 1800s, I think by the time of the Civil War, the average height of a man was something along the lines of, again, five foot six, five foot seven. Short kings. Like, that's what it was. Diets very different over even the past hundred years. Actually, interesting point. Do you know how um, there's a huge difference in height between people from North Korea and South Korea? 
apparently I do now. Okay. So one of the reasons why there's a key difference in heights uh, within a lot of things in Asia versus here, you actually end up seeing Asian Americans are on average much taller than people just in Asia, even from just like a generational difference. And the reason for that specifically comes from diet and availability, because instead of being relying on mostly rice and grains, there's a lot more variation to the diet and more nutrition. So people are on average taller. It's really funny because there is this um, ways to predict your height and it uses like your parents' heights and then you subtract like the average of your parents' heights and then you subtract, I think, a certain amount of inches based on whether you're a male or female. Yeah. Which doesn't work for anyone in my family because all of our uh, parents are shorter than all of my siblings. Oh, yeah. No, I've been around your siblings. Like we're massive in comparison to our parents who are like a foot shorter than us. So I don't know what happened there, but I think it's really cool. Yeah. Gabby herself, I'm not short. I'm I'm slightly above average. She's only half an inch shorter than I am. And then I go and I meet her family and they're all towering above me like a good by a good four or five inches. I could have been taller, but I was a picky eater. (laughs) Oh, God, I hope that doesn't end up happening to Joya. Either way. Either way, I'm just messing with you. I don't know why I'm shorter. I'm sure there was just genetic. You're still really tall, though. Well, yeah, but I could have been six foot five like the rest of them. I don't know how I feel about that in this context, because I can only imagine you as a six foot four woman also simultaneously wearing heels looking down upon me. I do that anyway. Yes, you do look down upon me there anyway. Whenever you put on heels, as I said, half an inch taller every time she puts on heels. I feel it. I feel I just I look up at her. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So Houdini, short, bit of a compact muscle boy, though. He was, what, do you, what are you looking at me for? Why'd you say muscle boy? Because he was. He was a young man at this time. He was only like the age of 12, but he was like 12, 13. He was compact. He was strong. All right. Imagine, imagine like a little Wolverine from X Man. That was him. Jim Bro. Jim Bro Houdini. Jim Bro Houdini. Around this time, at the age of 11 or so, he is working for a local locksmith as an apprentice. And one day, a policeman comes in with a prisoner that is in handcuffs, who is a massive guy that is looking down on the young Eric. The policeman says that the man has been arrested, but was later found innocent due to a lack of evidence and is asking them to please remove the cuffs from him. The locksmith begins to work on it, but the policeman apparently doesn't want this 
and is like, nah, I'm bored. Do you want to like just have a beer with me? Let the boy take care of it. We're going to sit here. We're going to have a beer. Which is very weird to do on the job. But apparently that's how the story goes. So the locksmith, amazingly enough, agrees. And the two go in the back to have a beer together. Meanwhile, Eric is just left with this prisoner that is very frustrated and wants out because, you know, he's an innocent man and he's trying to be let free. And at first, he's trying to saw the cuffs off because this is something that a locksmith would have, like one of those little hand saws to be able to remove locks. But in a moment of inspiration, he looks over, sees a wire on the table, walks over to it, grabs it, bends it into a shape, and then uses it to pick the lock. He follows his instincts, and after a series of small, precise adjustments, in a few moments, the lock springs open and the man is free. Houdini would then go on to say later that this is the only person in life who actually knew his secret. See, this is from the time that he would become fascinated with locks and escaping, because if anyone knows Houdini and what he was famous for, he was an escape artist. That was like his big trick, was being able to remove himself out of situations that no one believed that he would be capable of doing. Like this, this would be the case where if you've seen pictures of Harry Houdini wrapped up in a straitjacket with like 30 different sets of locks all over him, and then he's dunked into a pool of water that is then sealed, then he has to escape from. These are the kinds of things that he would do, and I'm sure that we're going to get into talking about it, but that's, these are the kinds of crazy stunts that this is where that fascination would begin with. Now, we have to mention that before we continue with the story of Houdini, that this entire thing is a mystery wrapped up inside of a conundrum, wrapped inside of an illusion. There are layers, and we cannot verify all of this information. His own story is something that would change repeatedly over the course of his life. In fact, it took all the way until 1971 to definitively prove that he was not actually born in Appleton, Wisconsin. He only lived in Appleton for less than five years, but would still continue to call it his home and would even sign some autographs with Appleton, Wisconsin on it. And it was just something that he would use and others would use to try and identify him as a all-American boy versus having been an immigrant. Like Truly. that he was always there. Once you move to the U.S., you can you can literally tell people whatever you want. How are they going to know? Oh, especially in the 1800s? Like, <laughs> oh, what are yeah. they going to be doing to Even verify? Even to this day, how do you know I'm not from Florida? I could be from Florida. If I meet somebody for the first time, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm from Florida. Why not? Oh, yeah, Who's no. fact checking? We just look at the area code on your phone. Yeah. Yeah, it Orlando, right there. Florida. Yeah, 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 totally. That's that's what we're going to go and base off of. So the funny thing is, even after he ended up dying, his wife and brother, and we're, we're, mind you, skipping ahead by many years at this point, they would continue to muddy the water of any of the official record of Houdini by repeating his story, embellishing it, outright just making up things about him in order to keep his legend alive. His greatest skill, and he had a lot of skills, was not his physicality, it wasn't his trickery, it wasn't any of that. It was his PR. He knew how to put on a show and simultaneously knew how to get his name out there to the point that people would continue to tell aspects of his life that would be tall tales for years. A lot of the legends have some truth of them, but it is much harder to verify this information specifically because of the steps that he and his family took in order to try and get his name out. So, back to New York, where there is a young teenage Eric that is desperately trying to help his father succeed. Unfortunately for them, around this time, it was Eric's older brother, Herman, that 
would end up running into trouble first because he would fall sick with tuberculosis and end up passing away. Mayor Samuel and then fell on hard times and couldn't afford the funeral costs for his own child. So Eric himself, who is, mind you, I think at this point, the age of 12, actually has to go and pay all the fees for his brother to be buried. Shortly after this, his father would then die of cancer. And he made Eric promise him on his deathbed that he would become a great man and take care of his mother. And that was a promise that Eric would take to heart. He'd always been a bit of a mama's boy anyway, but now he had to succeed. He had to do something and could not break this promise to his father. So a 12-year-old Eric that had no idea what to do at the time to support his family ended up running away twice in order to join the circus. The first time he tried, he sent his mother a postcard saying that he was heading to Galveston, Texas, but he never actually made it. Someone would ask about the postcard years later, and he annotated the postcard explaining that he got in the wrong boxcar and ended up in Kansas City instead. So young Eric and his pal Jacob then decide that, all right, we're going to become magicians instead. We're going to be putting on our own shows. But in order to do this, they need a name. He was under the impression that if you added I to the end of a word in French, that meant like that thing. So since he idolized the man who is by the name of Houdin in French, he mistakenly thought with, you know, not being aware of how to pronounce things in French, that it was actually Houdin. So Houdini, he was like his hero, Houdin. So he was Houdini. Since this was Eric, it was Eric Houdini, which then became Eri Houdini, which then became Harry Houdini. Gradually, over time, as it's getting more and more Americanized, it's just what would end up happening. And so he and his friend ended up calling themselves the Brothers Houdini. But the pressures of being a magician could be a little bit too much for some people. And after a time, Hyman simply wasn't able to actually do it anymore. Would you say Hyman broke? Yes, Houdini's hymen broke. That sounds sorry. so I'm incredibly hymen. I know, I know. It writes itself. And I wasn't even processing that for a second, and it does write itself. You are right. You are right. But luckily, at the very least, Harry's brother Dash had also, he caught the magic bug, if you will, and he ended up being inserted back into hymen's position. Which again sounds so oh weird that I'm saying here, I know, but he ended up taking over the position himself. All right, that happened. So the brothers now soon began to travel and improve upon their act and do things themselves. And in 1893, they ended up going back to Chicago at the request of Saul Bloom. Bloom, if you remember when we did that whole episode on the Chicago World's Fair, that was that young guy, that 23-year-old entrepreneur. He, he, he was in charge of all of the Midway Entertainment, the big key entertainment part of the entire affair. And he reached out to entertainers of all types. And the Houdini brothers were one of the people that answered the calls. I remember that, yeah. A little fun fact about Saul Bloom. We never talked about what he did afterwards of the Chicago Fair. But he actually later on went and became a politician in 1922 and ended up being elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 19th district covering New York's Upper East Side. He was even chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee during World War II and would serve all the way until his death in 1949. 
He did more in his life than most people do. Ever. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Hell for a lot of combinations. So after this event, the brothers Houdini then spent some time in Coney Island during the year in 1894. And it was at this point that Houdini's life would get changed forever. It was here after witnessing a showgirl act called the Floral Sisters that he would meet an 18-year-old Wilhelmina Beatrice Rayner, who went by the name Bess. Oh, and he fell in love. It was true love at first sight. He was only 20 years old when they met, and after only three weeks of an intense courtship, they got married. People back then really were like, live fast, die young. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Houdini's mom was okay with having a Catholic daughter-in-law, but Bess's mother? Oh, she was a strict German Catholic. And to see her daughter marry a Jewish person? Oh, 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 that, that was, yeah, she, she was not happy. There was definitely some prejudices of the time. Unfortunately for them, Bess's mother refused to speak to her daughter or her new son-in-law for years. Just would not talk to them. It was not a great start. But aside from that, life was pretty good for the newlyweds. They renamed the act as The Houdinis with Bess, taking Dash's place as an assistant so that Harry could be the solo star of the show. Houdini was always very careful to give her credit and say that he could not have achieved his level of success without his wife as well as Dash. So don't feel bad for Dash. He would help Houdini as an assistant for years and form his own show under the name of Hardeen, having achieved a pretty good level of fame and prestige in his own at the time. Just, of course, when you're comparing yourself to Houdini, it's simply not going to be as much. So, the Houdinis would go on to hit the road and play beer halls and travel with the circuses. They were doing a variety of different things. They had to constantly change up their act, looking for that one killer angle that they could draw in the crowds and keep them hooked. Harry tried performing a solo card magic show that he would bill as Cardo, the king of cards, and he would even dress up as Progea, the wild man of Mexico. This act had him use slate of hand abilities in order to pretend to eat cigarettes that would be thrown at him while he acted like an animal housed in a cage, which, considering the context of that, if you applied that to the modern day, yeah, there, there's no way in hell that anything like that would ever fly nowadays, but, you know, it was a very different time. He did later state that he regretted performing the wild man act, though, if only, you know, because it's pretty embarrassing. It didn't actually really do anything for him. As the 1890s came to a close, Houdini began to suffer from a crisis of confidence. He was successful, but not wildly so. He hadn't found the great success that would be something that would make him. And at one point, things got so rough that in 1898, he tried to sell his entire act, including the rights to his best illusion, metamorphosis. But thankfully, at the time, no one actually took him up on his offer. That's actually so much more insulting. Wow. Yeah. So that was where he was at his lowest point. And he did try this, but thankfully, since it didn't work out, things would turn around for him. There was a stroke of luck for him about a year later. Houdini ended up getting his big break finally when a guy by the name of Martin Beck, the producer of a number of different vaudeville shows, saw him perform at the Palm Garden Beer Hall in St. Paul, Minnesota. Now, Bick was a man who had a number of different gifts, but his greatest gift was that he knew talent when he saw it. 
This is the guy who would actually go on to introduce the world to Charlie Chaplin, Will Rogers, and the Marx Brothers. I mean, we're talking Charlie Chaplin here. This was big. He was so impressed by the show that he booked the Houdinis in order to perform on his Keith Ophium Vaudeville circuit, the biggest vaudeville touring show in the Western United States. Within months, the Houdinis were performing in some of the nation's top theaters and vaudeville halls, and Martin Beck would continue to nurture his career. Beck was actually the person who told Houdini that he should basically abandon traditional magic for the most part and instead focus on escapes, like the big brand name shows effectively. From this point on, magic tricks were still in the act, but the main focus would be Houdini's efforts on death-defying escapes. He even created a new term for what he became, an escapologist, which later would form into what we would call today an escape artist. Like where that term comes from, that is, that is what we're talking about. Now is when the genius of Houdini's marketing really begins to show. He generally would judge his success by newspaper mentions and articles about his act, so he started to promote himself by calling ahead to all of the police stations and newspapers in the cities that the circuit would be performing in. He would set up appearances where he would be shackled with multiple handcuffs and chained from head to toe, and to prove that he didn't have a key on his person, he would perform these escapes almost entirely in the nude. Just be naked. Because, you know, then he had nothing that he could hide. One time in Rhode Island, he managed to escape the cuffs in 18 seconds. Another famous story had a local police chief and his men lock Houdini in their holding cell, secured like normal with various different forms of locks and chains on him, and they also put his clothes in a different cell and triple locked it. They then went to make a pot of coffee and chat and work and, you know, didn't really think that it would take all that amount of time. Like they would come back and he would still be there. It wouldn't be any trouble that it would take hours to begin to escape from the chain of the first cell. But before the coffee was done brewing, Houdini walked inside, fully clothed and just dropped the chains on the floor and asked for a cup of coffee. And for this act, he was presented with a certificate that was signed by the chief as a witness to the amazing event. In San Francisco and Chicago, these events would draw huge crowds. Remember, he's doing these escapes in the nude, which would be eye-opening now. But back then, we're talking about the 1800s going into the early 1900s. So a guy doing this basically naked was scandalous. The San Fran escape was unique because what they would do is cuff him with five pairs of handcuffs, five sets of shackles on his ankles, and another set chaining his wrists and feet together. They also would tape his mouth shut, and he was out in less than 10 minutes holding a daisy chain of cuffs swung over his shoulder. Yeah, um, that, that is insane. Houdini had become famous at this point for handcuffs escapes, but these prison breaks were the PR gold that he needed. He was the king of handcuffs, the paper would call him, which is a very interesting title to have in the first place. In Europe, he became known as the elusive American, which again is pretty funny considering that he was a immigrant born in Eastern Europe. But the real secret? Houdini would write almost all of his press articles and would just send them into the newspaper, who would then decide whether or not they wanted to run them or not. And most of the time, because they were basically receiving a free article that they could just put up and draw attention to themselves, they would just run it. So Harry Houdini was figuring out how to make personalized posts to social media effectively before social media was a thing by advertising himself 
also, again, without paying for an advertisement. He would just do these random things. He's a marketing genius. Literally, in a time before you had any kind of development for marketing, that's exactly what he was doing. So he would continue to perform these similar sets of escapes throughout the world. In Liverpool, he freed himself from three pairs of handcuffs. He unlocked his cell door and the doors of all the other cells in the local prison. In Washington, D.C., he escaped from Murderer's Row, where he then proceeded to open the doors of eight other cells and shuffle the prisoners around so that each was found in a different cell. In Boston City Prison, Houdini managed to escape from the handcuffs and his cell, as well as scale the prison wall and reach a phone that was half a mile away, where he phoned the prison superintendent all in 20 minutes. Like 20 minutes later, the, the superintendent of the prison is getting a phone call from like a mile away. It's insane. Top flight security of the world, right? This was just the best. That is insane. When possible, Houdini would visit the jail cell in order to test the lock's working functionality using the cell's actual key. And then once he had brief possession of the key, he would sometimes make wax impressions of it using a small box that was filled in wax that he would keep in his palm. And then from this impression, a duplicate key would be made later at some time. Sometimes he was handed a master key that fit all the cells of the block. Once a duplicate was made of the key, Houdini could open numerous cells in quick fashion as is. There was, however, a big issue. Because we're talking about at this point, he's not just picking a lock, he has a key. So where exactly does he hide the C? The C, the key, the key, the key is what I mean. Well, I have some guesses. I can't Gabby, say them. Yeah. Oh, oh do, t- do tell. This is the podcast. It's free and open for anyone no, to no, say no, where no, he no, could no, be putting no, no, no. it. People already think I'm scandalous as a host. You, oh, OK. You, OK. Just, you just tell us where he kept it. Well, one of the places that he had a tendency to keep things was to hide it inside of his shaggy hair with a dab of adhesive wax. Right. He also used gum that could pin the key beneath a prison bench or even under the lock itself when he was pretending to examine it one last time. He also had hollow-heeled slippers that would swivel open by pressing a hidden catch. And the hooked key was another gadget that he would use where he would simply just hook the key to the back of someone's clothing with a faint brush of the back and then retrieve it after being examined. Other times, he would resort to hiding the key or any of his lockpicking tools in the old prison wallet right up the rusty sheriff's badge in there, by the way, of the chocolate starfish. So I was right. Yeah, so you were right. Yes, you were entirely right. He, he, he was putting it in his butt on occasion. Wow, James, these were very descriptive. Thank you so much for writing in all of these very colorful descriptions. Let me find one in here that it's really nice. Ah, yes, the brown balloon knot. Very lovely stuff. Good very, job, very James. Thank you. This you is why here. we pay you the big bucks. Yeah. Houdini always did that one, though, as a last resort. That was not the one that you wanted to just do. It was always better to use alternative means that were cleaner and didn't potentially hurt him. It, once. Just it's once. Key. Yeah. How much is how about <laughs> let's be real? I mean, Gabby, a rather a rusty key that has effectively been everywhere all over that prison. You Ew. wrap it in something. Ugh. Okay, well. Well, once he thrust his hands through the bars of the jail and shook hands to admit defeat in a joking faction. However, the man who was a friend of his who was wearing a ring with a spring clip was there. And during the handshake, Houdini simply took the key from the clip and escaped. On another occasion, his wife rushed to the cell and gave Houdini a long farewell kiss. But the key was in Mrs. Houdini's mouth. And so that 
ended up, you know, being in his hands again upon completion that no one again noticed. Best Houdini would give off vibes of being you, basically. Just someone who would do something that no one's going to notice it in the first place. But that's the whole point. They're not going to notice because you're going to slip in, take everyone's attention briefly. And boom, there it is. Now it's mine. And now we got it. Now we tricked everyone. <laughs> you're very pretty is what I'm saying. And you could very easily distract. Also, I like kissing you. It's the bait and switch on TikTok where like people don't stick around when it's just a video of you. But they definitely, I hate that so they much. They stick around when you're in it initially because you're super pretty. So I literally just have to introduce it and then find a way to just be inconspicuous. Because then they'll stay for the rest of the video because what you're saying is interesting. But I'm the hook. Do you remember, Gabby, one of the things that you used to you do in the beginning? I, I don't think you've done this for at least another year. But about a year or so ago, I remember one of the hooks that you used to try and do was you would introduce it and then just be doing something in the background. Like literally at one point was tearing paper apart and sticking it in your mouth. Yeah, but I don't even need to do that anymore. I just have to exist in the video but in the first five seconds. And I, then the video does well. Yeah, and people like it. I hate it. Welcome to the internet. Distraction is a very key and easy thing that can be used for all forms of entertainment. And it's what people do. I'm just, I'm your free marketing. <laughs> you are my free marketing. And you know what? I damn well love you for that. Oh, thank you. Among other things, that's only one of the things that I love you for. I just needed to go ahead and clarify that right now. Well, no, I need to know the other things. Can I have an itemized list after the episode? An itemized list. What, itemized am, I, what am I, an list. accountant? I, no, you're the person who makes the itemized list for the accountant. Okay, we're going to need to get working on that anyway. So, okay. All right. So, Bess would do things like this. And then by the year 1900, the Houdinis had crossed the Atlantic and would spend the majority of the next five years touring Europe. A five-year tour in Europe? Oh, yeah. Big time. Lucky. Because they're traveling all around for the different shows because these shows are the thing that are bringing in money. So that's what they're able to do. It's, I want to do that. Can you, you be a magician next? Could it be just, I would love to do more of the things for traveling to random locations. Listen, if the whole thing, like the trip that we have with Japan, and we're about to put out an announcement, I'm pretty sure that by the time that this episode comes out, the announcement is going out this next week, but I could probably spoil it right now a little bit. We should actually of. make an announcement for the beginning too, but we're going to Italy. Yeah, we're going to be going to Italy. With you guys. So that announcement is going out on the 12th. So at the time, hey, congratulations, spoiler, you all just earned it. But yeah, we're going to be doing more traveling and going to more places with you guys. And that's kind of a thing that we want to do in the future is just travel and go to more places around the world and make stories about that. And this is like not just like a trip to Italy. It's literally... I think it was the first three days you do almost everything in Rome. Coliseums, uh, uh, St. Peter's Basilica. You're doing you're doing all of the stuff. The Trevi Fountain. In addition, there's also like a winery tour. Oh, yeah. No, wait, wasn't that in Florence, though? Yeah. So it's like um, Rome and Florence. And yes, Rome and Florence. It is. It's, it's amazing, you guys. Like, I'm so excited. I've never been to Italy. It's actually typically very expensive to go to Italy. So we tried to get the best deal possible. So as many of us can go. As possible. So Japan, then Italy, and then hopefully afterwards we're looking at something like maybe Peru or Which would be like Turkey. significantly cheaper because it turns out traveling to not Europe is significantly cheaper. Yay. Yeah. So that's one of the plans that we have here moving forward. Just as a little tidbit and a heads up for all of you. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? 
Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. So, anyway, across the Atlantic, in Europe, next five years, doing some tours. Houdini puts out a challenge for any man to bring up a set of handcuffs that could confine him. So a blacksmith in Birmingham, England, starts a five-year project in order to design a set of cuffs that are impossible to escape. But more on that later. Houdini also then began incorporating straitjacket escapes into his act because around this time, based on Dash's suggestion, he should do this. And in fact, Hardeen, as he was known on stage, would perform a straitjacket escape first. You got to remember that at the time that they're doing this in handcuffs and straitjackets, these are far more imposing means of restraints than they are now. They are way more restrictive. So the Houdinis were also said to have visited the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II. And while Rasputin glared at him from the corner of the parlor, Houdini reportedly amazed and delighted the royal family and then suddenly walked to the window and stopped saying, it has been hundreds of years since the bells of the Kremlin have rung. They shall ring again tonight. In fact, I remember actually distinctly so there was a scene in a movie. I, I think I remember seeing this, a movie on Houdini. And just as he said this, he flung open the window, letting in the cold air. And as this happened, a sudden ringing of the bells. The czar was amazed and clapped in appreciation. His wife also gasped in surprise. And Rasputin grumbled and ended up fidgeting around due to not being the focus of the family's attention. Because at the time, this whole thing with Rasputin is... Rasputin is the one that people are kind of upset about at this time in Russia, saying that he has an undue influence on the family. But there's a big secret of this. What's the secret? His wife. So Bess Houdini was set up in an open window adjacent to the bells and was shooting them repeatedly with an air rifle, causing them to ring. And because it's an air rifle, right, there's no sound of a gunshot or any of that. It's just the bing, bing, bing as it hits like there's nothing else. I love Bess. It's just great. At least it would be an awesome story if it had happened. The reality of it is that it never probably did and was just something that ended up being made up as a story by Houdini as to just some of his exploits. That's the unfortunate thing that we were talking about in the beginning, that a lot of these things with Houdini, we have literally no way of verifying because there are so many things that he himself his family, his wife, everyone just made up in order to keep his legend more alive. Should I just make up stories about you guys? Did you know that Stephen has one time wrestled a bear literally naked in the forest at 2 a.m.? Some people would probably believe that. He if won, they got me, by the way. If they got me drunk Now enough. the bear rug actually hangs in our um, lip. Actually, no, I can't even say that. I'm so sorry. I don't like bear rugs. They make me sad. But if you have one, I'm not judging you. I love hunting. 
Truthly, I've almost truth. been canceled for making a comment once about hunting. I hunt. Okay, Truthfully, guys. bear rugs on the ground are like a classic staple of what you'd see for a hunter. When you see an actual full rug that is just on the ground of a full animal, honestly, I'd say if anything, it just looks tacky now. It really. I'm going to start making up stories about you. That was my point. Though. Oh, that you're going to do that? Okay. See, here's the funny thing about all this. Uh, there's no way in hell that this would have happened because Tsar Nicholas II was a big anti-Semite and oh. would not have been caught dead entertaining a Jew. No, no way in hell that would have happened. They were just openly leaders and anti. Oh, yeah, this is you're talking about. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wow. Some of them get particularly bad. And also there's a whole thing with um, we're not even going to get going to get into it. But there's a whole thing with people talk about like Jewish conspiracy and Bolshevism and the issues that are going on with revolutionaries and whatnot in Russia at this time. We're going to that that gets into some really anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. That it goes into. It's not good. It's wild that it was that bad and that open back then. But also my best friend in high school was Jewish and people would say the worst things to her face. Like we'd all be sitting there and somebody would just say it. Yeah. Yeah. Just out loud. Yeah. In public. Yeah. People do stuff. People do stuff. It's a lot better now than what it was. But in general, welcome to humanity. Has a tendency to end up being like that. The dates of the whole thing just don't really line up, and it just doesn't make sense that Houdini would end up being given an audience with him in the first place. But the most damning piece of evidence about all of this not being true is the fact that there are no bell towers in the Kremlin in the first place. What? Yeah, so it's just a whole thing that's just kind of made up. <laughs> it feels weird to put that well, in here, maybe, but yeah. Maybe they made bell towers. Like, what if they had a bell tower and then they got rid of it? Maybe he magic the bell tower in and out. I guess so. Like, <laughs> the thing is, they did visit Russia. They did do some, like, famous escapes from Siberian, uh, like, prisons, like, from the Siberian transport cell, which was used to transport prisoners to the dreaded Butskaya prison. But the ringing of the Kremlin bells, pure PR and propaganda, and it worked, too. That's the thing about Houdini. He can tell all these stories, all these things that he can put out, and people will continue to repeat them. But you never are really able to tell. I say never. In this case, you can definitely tell. He did a mass PR campaign, but most of it was misinformation that people believed, which blew him off to popularity. It's it's literally genius. Oh, yeah. One of the stories we do know, though, that is true, 100% true, is the story of the mirror cuffs. So remember that challenge that Houdini put out about how there were no handcuffs that could hold on to him at all? And, well, what ended up happening is that the London Daily Mirror newspaper took him up on that offer. And on March 17th, 1904, at the London Hippodrome, the challenge commenced. There was a guy by the name of Nathaniel Hart, who was a master locksmith from Birmingham. And he had spent the last five years designing and forging a pair of handcuffs with an ingenious internally housed design that could only open with one specifically designed key. That's it. It was reported that more than 4,000 people and 100 journalists turned out for this really hyped event. And Houdini disappeared into his stage cabinet which he called his ghost house, to embark on his escape, and the band began to play. After 22 minutes, the star's face poked out, but only to get a better look at the lock in the strong electric light. As the clock reached 35 minutes, Houdini emerged again, with his collar broken and sweat pouring down his face, complaining that his knees hurt. The cuffs remained in place, but he insisted that he was not done. Mind you, he has a broken collar at this point. And admiring his resolve, the mirror offers the, ma- the magician a cushion to kneel on. After another 35 minutes, he emerged again, this time to groans, 
his shackles were still on. He asked the mirror man to remove the cuffs so he could take off his coat, restricting his movement. The mirror reporter on the scene, Frank Parker, refused, saying that Houdini could gain an advantage if he saw how the cuffs were unlocked. Houdini then promptly took out a small knife and, holding the knife in his teeth, used it to cut off his coat. Some 56 minutes after starting, Houdini's wife appeared on stage and gave him a kiss. It was believed that by something that was in her mouth, perhaps the key to unlock the special handcuffs that it was given to him, and another theory is that the key was somehow hidden in the glass or palmed by Bess, but either way, Houdini then went back beyond the curtain, and after an hour and ten minutes, he emerged free. As he was paraded around on the shoulders of the cheering crowds, he broke down and wept, saying that that was the hardest thing that he had ever done, but at the same time, one of the fairest tests that he had ever had. And he would consistently rank it as the hardest handcuff escape that he ever had for the rest of his life. And that's really one of his peaks. If you remember that promise that he had made to his dying father so many years earlier, well, Houdini would actually keep good on that promise. By this point, he was making around $400 a week, which if you account for inflation, was north of $6 million a year in today's dollar. What? He was making a ton of money at this point. So in 1905, our very good mama's boy went and bought a seven-acre farm in Stamford, Connecticut and a stylish brownstone in what was then the very fashionable Harlem. His mother, sister, and two brothers all moved into the brownstone, and Houdini's mother was then well taken care of for the remainder of her life by her son, with Harry oftentimes lavishing very nice gifts on her, including a dress that was supposedly belonging to, or rather designed for, Queen Victoria of Great Britain herself. That is really cool. I wish I could buy my mom a house. I know. It's one of those things that I think a lot of people especially dream of. And it's really big, I think, especially for immigrants. It is really big for immigrants because, you you know, I am my parents' retirement plan. I Correct. have to take care of my parents. And Correct. my brother, when he finishes med school, I mean, hopefully, if you're listening, bro, pay up. For We're one splitting of the, this. We don't talk oftentimes about stuff that is personal for us, but it is pretty big because Gabby and I effectively do support a lot of the family that we have here. You all listening to the podcast and enjoying things along with us and Patreon and everything else is one of the things that helps contribute to things. Because not only are we paying for ourselves, but we take care of our daughter, naturally, as well as her parents, because, well, her father is unable to work and her mother helps to raise our daughter so that we can work, work and produce <laughs> as much as we can. Because the weird thing, and it's not just me, that is a lot of, I guess, immigrants where yes. essentially... They give up everything to bring you here and they raise you and they pay for school and then you kind of just have to pay them back because, you know, obviously Americans who've lived and worked here their entire life have retirement plans, but it works differently in different countries. And so if you move out of your country, you wouldn't have the welfare programs of that country. So exactly. it's, it's on the kid who can work. So it just, it's a lot of pressure, I think, because I didn't get to do what I wanted to in my 20s or go to school and get more degrees like I was planning on. It was just like work, 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 as Rihanna said. <laughs> work, work, work. Is that, are you referencing the work, 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 work? Wow. Which is totally fine. I'm really blessed that I can do it. But it is something to consider Americans who like to say I'm anti-American or 
just have a different perspective. I'm not. I'm very thankful to be here. I just have a different life um, experience. And so on that note of talking about things for parents and for working, that's what he did. He, he worked as much as he possibly could in order to be able to give his mother the life that he had promised his dad that he would be able to. And eventually what would happen is that Houdini had to gradually start upping the ante. He had to increase the stakes of things because he couldn't keep the same sort of regular acts forever. I say regular, but he couldn't continue to do things at the level that he was. So he had to up things not only to keep the audiences coming in, but simultaneously for his own pleasure. Remember how from a young age talked about how obsessed he was with putting on a show and doing all these crazy stunts and things? The man was an adrenaline junkie. He never felt more alive than when he was risking everything to achieve something that people thought was impossible. If he had been alive today, he would have been an X game star easily. He would have been the one who was doing all these big, crazy stunts for attention and simultaneously to feel something. It's, it's insane. What starts to happen next illustrates this point. Eventually, it wasn't just enough to escape from a straitjacket. Now he had to do it while being suspended upside down hundreds of feet in the air. It really is funny because one of the things that he would state is um, marriage was really the only shackle that he never actually wanted to escape from. Marriage no, is which, a shackle. Well, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's a funny little thing, you know, like he was shacked up with his wife and it's the only thing that he ever actually never wanted to escape from, despite the fact that he was escaping from quite literally everything else. That's sweet. Yeah, it's a really sweet little thing. He and his wife were definitely madly in love, especially from a young age. And you wouldn't expect that with how quickly they pursued things that it would work, but it did. And I really like when little stories like that work out because it's so much more touching. Bestie, we literally elope. I know, I know we did. <laughs> 20 and, and 21. <laughs> I know, I know we did. Love you. Ew, don't do that in public. We're not in public. We're addressing the public. All right. <laughs> There's a difference. Anyway, back to Houdini. He came up and escaped, or not came up and escaped. He came up with an entire new trick that was designed around the idea of being submerged in water inside of a milk can, which you're going to be confused for anyone that's thinking about this. We're talking about the like milk drums, basically, the same size as an oil drum, those massive, massive milk cans. And after being handcuffed, he would be enclosed inside of the milk can that had been dramatically filled over the brim with pail after pail of water. And after a curtain was drawn with the audience attempting to hold its breath along with him, he would then make his escape. The secret of how he performed this escape was hidden inside of, uh, like, dur like, during his lifetime. But a few years after his death, Walter Gibson ended up publishing a book supposedly based on Houdini's own notes and drawings. And this is supposedly how it worked. The top of the milk can while nearly impossible to remove from the outside, was actually quite easy to push out from the inside. And so Houdini only had to place it on, like, only had to place it on the back of the milk can securely in order to pass inspection. So that once he walked out, wet but free, to the cheering of the crowd, it worked. He could just open it up. Because from the outside, you know, they're trying to pull this thing off and it's not going. But from the inside, he just has to apply a little pressure and boom, pops right out. It works. And for added drama, Houdini would make sure that the posters of this trick would state, failure means a drowning death. See, he literally was the first clickbait. 
That oh, yeah. is the first clickbait of yeah. probably ever, maybe. Which is kind of true. If he did fail, it would mean that he would die. Well, it's yeah, just that's but what there's he was no way he was going to fail if it opened from the inside. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he was clickbaiting them. Oh, he would definitely clickbait him because he knew exactly how to get out of it. So Houdini was crushing it in pretty much every way possible. He was easily the most famous magician of the day and to this day is the most famous magician of all time. More than, what is that one guy, David Blaine and all those others? Like you use Houdini as a benchmark for everything and he is making money hand over fist easily. In 1912, he would unveil what would be potentially his most famous escape of all, the Chinese water torture cell. Now, Houdini didn't actually give it that name. The press dubbed it as that and ran with it. And since, as well as you know, Gabby, history is very full of strange things, he called it the Upside Down. Strange things? Strange, stranger? Stranger things? Right. I've blocked every yeah. aspect of that show from my memory because it was, it was, it was kind of creepy for me. I don't watch creepy things. No, I have fair anxiety. Enough. Fair enough. I, I, I know. I, just, I, I really had to look at you while saying that because uh-huh. it's... The upside down. The upside down. <laughs> so the, the upside down ends up getting built in England in 1911. And in yet another example of his, of his genius, Houdini would perform this escape for the first time for an audience of one person as part of a one act play that he called Houdini upside down. Naming sense is absolutely impeccable. The reason for this is that Houdini had suffered from a series of copycats ever since he became famous. A whole bunch of people would just mimic his tricks and try to do exactly what he did. And the reason for this is that um, he was big, obviously. So they would just continue to try to copy. He would even go through the process of trying to obtain patents for his props, for his equipment, and for everything that he could because lesser magicians were always constantly trying to steal from his repertoire of tricks. This ended up making Houdini very lawsuit happy. But simultaneously, because we're talking about magician tricks, there wasn't really anything that he could do to protect them by merely just patenting them. Thus, he made the play to be able to copyright the act because the copyright law for plays and musicals back then protected the creator way more than the patent did. So by doing things in the sequence, by putting all this as he's patenting the show itself, not the trick, then that means that you're not just copying the trick itself to put on a show for someone. You're physically copying the show itself. Like you're not copying someone doing the bend and snap. You're copying the entirety of Legally Blonde. That's, I referenced a thing for theater that I have no idea exactly how many people are going to get, but my cousin was in Broadway, all right? And it just, it occurred to me right now to say that. And I'm kind of embarrassed that I just said that You know right how now. he's Stephen Bell? His cousin is Laura Bell Bundy. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> we're just gonna put that in there. So they'll make if you know Legally Blonde on Broadway, you'll know who she is. Yeah. So he did this whole thing in order to protect his outright play, and a whole bunch of people just kept on trying to copy stuff anyway. Like dozens of magicians were ripping off his milk can escape, and it infuriated him. So by doing it this way, his act should supposedly be safe from being stolen. Houdini then had his water torture cell built in England at a cost of more than $10,000. The frame and heavy stocks were made of Honduras mahogany and nickel-plated steel with brass fixtures. The front consisted of a plate of half-inch tempered glass, and the apparatus weighed around three-quarters of a ton and held 250 gallons of water. It was 
massive. The escape would consist of three parts. First, the magician's feet are locked inside of stocks. Next, he is suspended in midair from his ankles with a restraint brace. And finally, he is lowered into a glass tank overflowing with water and the restraint is locked to the top of the cell. This doesn't portray the full terror that one has to feel inside of the cell. This thing is insane. At most, like a most interesting note about it is that the cell only measured five feet by six inches. That's it. That, that's it. And remember, Houdini is five foot five. So his head would have been right up to the floor of the cell. And he's got the pressure of trying to force water in his lungs at the same time. And he's outside down, upside down inside of this thing that he has locked in. Claustrophobia is real. This thing is, it, even if I know the exact trick of exactly how I would get out, I still wouldn't want to do this. But you're not claustrophobic. No, but by virtue of what you'd be feeling, the pressure, the water, you ever been suspended upside down inside of a pool and just that feeling of yeah. pressure of like, you're not allowed to I come back up? I have siblings. Of course I've been suspended okay. upside down in a pool. Yeah, this, this is like that on steroids. The tension delivered by the fact when, the, like, when he'd be submerged meant that the audience could actually see through the glass walls of the tank. That's terrifying. Like you'd be able to watch all of this going down and to watch Houdini begin to struggle while holding his breath, just to have the curtains pulled in front of the cell would drive people mad with anticipation because he would be lowered down. You would see him start to struggle and kind of move around. And then as he's moving around, then they would close the curtains. And now the audience doesn't get to actually see it happen. They just know that he's suspended beneath this thing and that he's stuck. That's all that they know. They don't know anything else. And he would always wait for the right amount of time for things to pass, for people to start to audibly wonder, like, is, is, is he okay? Is he dead? Did, did something happen? All of a sudden, to then emerge out, triumphant, soaking wet, but free. He really tapped into that desire that people had for, like, freedom and, like, this big make-or-break, like, shining moment. And he, he would do that perfectly. Again, he would not do it as quickly as he possibly could. He would specifically draw out the torture in order to make people wonder if he was dead only to emerge free. It was insane. And I've said that a lot, but it really is kind of crazy. What he was doing? Because remember, he was also the first one doing things like this. He would perform the Upside Down in public in 1912 at Circus Bush in Berlin, Germany. And it was a massive success. So much so that it became a staple of his act for the rest of his life. And it's interesting to note that while we discuss his actual cause of death later, because he does die, and it's not from old age, mind you, more than one of the films that were based on his life would rewrite history and would make him die in the Upside Down as it created more of a dramatic story climax. But no, he would never, ever pass out while performing the Upside Down. He never once failed in this. He did almost pass out once, setting the world record for time spent underwater in a locked chest. Another magician had set the record at just over 70 minutes and not to be outdone. Houdini not only broke his record, but like immediately, but also raised it to 90 minutes just because he could. It's Houdini. That's exactly what he's going to do. The only reason he didn't continue to do it is because apparently he started seeing yellow spots and blotches all over his vision and he had to call it quits because he was going to eventually pass out. Like Wait, it was so he was holding his breath in the underworld lock chest or was he just in underworld lock chest? I'm pretty sure that he was in a locked chest. So there still would have been some water, right? There still would have been some air that but was not, in there, but not enough. So if you control your breathing for long enough, you can make use of the air that is already in there before getting out. <laughs> My hyperventilation would use it all in the first three minutes. That's the point. 
that's the point. That's why it's such I'd a scary thing. Yeah. But Gabby, if you hyperventilate, if anything like that happens, you're using up the air quicker. Five so minutes that's later, why they'd be had... like, oh, she dead. Exactly. And for a lot of people, that would be the case. It's why you had to have such confidence when approaching this. Th- that was just what Houdini would do. In 1910, he became interested in the world's most amazing and brand new invention, the airplane, because that was a big thing that was starting to become more popular here at this time. He was so suddenly enamored with planes that he immediately bought one and not knowing how to fly at all, had it shipped to Australia where he would become the first person to fly an airplane there. Like in the whole continent. He just did it so that he could. More on his flying Oh, later, right, because he was rich at this point. Oh, he was rich at this oh, point. Oh, what would I do with fuck you money? I don't know. Good question. I'd launch myself into space. Space? I wouldn't that, space, space sounds I like a very space. safe default answer to just I do. love space. I want to go to space. Fair. You know that one robot that's like space, space, space. space. Go to go to space, space. space. I'm, I'm that robot, but like in a human person form. That makes sense. On one trip across the Atlantic, he was aboard something called the SS Imperator, sailing home from Germany. And it just so happened that the small group that he performed for included none other than former president Theodore Roosevelt. He performed some of his favorite tricks for the gregarious Roosevelt, including his famous needle trick, where he would thread around a dozen needles on a piece of thread and then swallow them only to pull them out back again by the thread. Roosevelt loved this stuff. Did he actually swallow the needles? It's a good question. I don't know the exact things of the trick, but I would assume that he swallowed it, but then the needles were probably pinned underneath his gums or something else that would not then have been visible. So Houdini, at this point, was on top of the world. He was at his peak when all of a sudden, in 1913, Cecilia Weiss, or Weiss, his beloved mother, ended up passing away. He was in Copenhagen and received the news just after having performed for the Danish royal family. And when he heard the news, he passed out from the shock. Upon waking, he had an emergency message sent to Dash telling him that under no circumstance was he allowed to bury his mother until he was able to sail home. This is an unusual request because according to Jewish custom, the dead are supposed to be buried within one day after death. But they honored his request, even though it took him a week to sail home. It's almost impossible to overstate just how much of a mama's boy he was. He loved his mother and would commonly refer to his mother and his wife as his two sweethearts. He once told Bess, I love you as I shall never love any woman, but the love of a mother is one that only a true mother should possess. For she loved me before I was born, loved me as I was born, and naturally will love me before one or the other passes into the great beyond. He loved his mom. And so that really destroyed him. For the first time in his life, after his mother died, he stopped working. He sank into a depression. He would visit his mother's grave every day for the first month. And he would regularly write to Dash about just how greatly this was affecting him. And when he did get back to work, he just wanted to speak to his mom again. To know that she was still around in some way or shape or form. And because of that, he started to get into the supernatural mediums, seances, things for trying to contact the dead. It just so happened that at this time that this was going on, like in the 1800s, going into the early 1900s, mediums and seances and all this new, not even new age, but all this spiritual stuff was all the rage. And one of Houdini's best friends happened to be the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, 
whose wife was a medium herself. Doyle had been a pretty good friend, and so he invited Houdini to a seance conducted by his wife in order to contact his mother. Houdini, likely out of respect for his friend, accepted the offer even though he didn't actually believe in spiritualism. But at this point, Harry was pretty much desperate for anything. And around that time, Bess, his wife, would recall that sometimes Harry would wake up in the middle of the night and call out into the darkness, Mama, are you here? Which is a really creepy thing, mind you, but you feel for the guy. So the Houdinis go and show up to the night of the invitation, and Miss Doyle begins the seance. Lady Doyle asks Cecilia if she was present, and then three knocks end up getting heard, which confirm that to be true. Then Lady Doyle furiously writes a 15-page letter, and then, when finished, hands it to Houdini. Later, Sir Doyle would note the moment, saying, I saw a man deeply moved and felt sure that he'd become a true believer. This could not have been further from the truth. In fact, the entire experience from this would serve to strain and nearly end the friendship between the two men. And why is it that you may wonder why, if he wanted this so desperately, would this happen? Well, that is because from the moment that he was handed the leather, he knew that it was all fake. He knew that it wasn't real. You see, Lady Doyle had started off by writing a cross at the top of the first page. Oh, that's not great. How did they not know he was Jewish? Houdini's mother could not have been more Jewish in her beliefs. Absolutely. The prose did not sound like her. It didn't sound like her voice at all written into words. But perhaps the biggest red flag of the Houdini was that the letters were written in proper English. And when Cecilia Weiss spoke, she didn't, she did speak some English, but she never, ever wrote in English and only ever spoke to her son in German. That's it. Houdini was insanely humiliated by the entire experience. So much so, in fact, that he spent much of his free time for the rest of his life showing up to seances in disguise and then removing them at the most dramatic moment possible to ruin things. Like, like you know Phoenix Wright? You, like the meme, if you've seen on the internet, of like, objection! Like, if you've seen the whole thing for Phoenix Rice, Wright, Ace Attorney, you, you haven't seen the thing on the, on the internet where it's like, objection, your honor, and it's like this cartoonish version of that? No. Oh, damn. I'm sorry. We are on completely different parts of the internet. Yeah. Anyway, he would do things like that. He would stand up, remove his hat and fake mustache, and then point accusingly towards the, uh, like to the medium's parlor tricks and all the things that they would be doing and just expose all of them, say exactly how it is that they were doing it and reveal everything in front of them. Houdini's goal was that no one was going to get humiliated or fooled by a medium that was preying on people's grief again, just like what had happened to him. And over the years, he exposed hundreds, if not thousands, of mediums and frauds. It became one of his favorite pastimes. But Houdini did a lot more things. In 1915, during a performance at the Los Angeles Orpheum, he would argue with the celebrated world heavyweight boxing champ, Jess Willard, who'd refused his invitation to join him on stage. After Willard goes and insults him, Houdini then wins over the crowd by retorting, Ah, yes, uh, I will be Harry Houdini, even when you are not the heavyweight champion of the world. It's kind of funny. In 1918, he ran the longest run of his career, lasting 19 weeks, and he starred in the patriotic extravaganza Cheer Up at the New York Hippodrome. The highlight of this act was the vanishing elephant trick that he did, along with an indoor version of his underwater box escape. 
He was then involved in a bit of a romantic affair with Chamian London, the widow of the writer Jack London, who had died in 1916. And he was always, always having his thumb on the pulse of society. He knew what was going to be big before anyone else did, and he knew exactly how to use it. In this case, the next big thing that he knew was coming was motion pictures. Because mind you, movies at this time are just now starting. Houdini goes and makes his first motion picture, the 15-episode serial, The Master Mystery, which is notable for being, um, how do I even put this? It has the first automaton fight, like it's man versus robot fight in movie history, and he's the one that made it. Despite the fact that he absolutely sucked at acting, the audience was thrilled by this. It was such a big and invigorating thing, and they loved his stunts and everything that he was putting in there, making him an even bigger international stars. He also then went on to create the Houdini Picture Corporation in 1922, releasing four films, including The Grim Game, a film that was lost for nearly 100 years. It's famous for having the first recorded actual plane crash in movie history. It involved a stunt where Houdini would jump from one plane to another. And mind you, these are biplanes, by the way. Like, think crop duster planes that are literally feet apart, and there is a man who is jumping from one to the next untethered, like up in the air. And the whole film is nearly impossible to find. Like, you would want to see the footage of a man doing these kinds of stunts. It is insane. If you just go and seriously go and look up Houdini Grim Game on YouTube, it is incredibly cool. It's a 100% real stunt that he did. Much of the rest of his life, though, was not just his stunts. He had already been doing that for the longest time. He would really devote the remainder of it largely to exposing mediums and touring the world when he wasn't making films. He would also go on to write numerous books that were, well, not him writing it. Usually they were written by ghost writers, but they were always approved by Houdini himself before publishing. And he was getting older. He was hitting his early 50s in 1926. He is mentally and physically tired at this point. He had toured over 300 days a year for decades. And at some point in the mid-1920s, he just couldn't really do it. He broke his ankle badly when he was twisted himself there in the upside down. He had multiple sold up tour dates all across the northeastern U.S. and Canada. He couldn't just simply take a break. He would just work through it all. But age was catching up to him. He was a bit slower now. He was starting to put on some weight. And after every show, he would have to lay down and elevate his ankle in order to relieve the pain. On October 26th, 1926. Houdini had just finished performing in Montreal when two students from the local McGill University requested an interview with him for the school paper. He was feeling awful at this point, but he was never going to be someone who turned down free publicity. And for a school newspaper, hey, that was just something that was going to appeal to children. He was being interviewed by one student and being sketched by another who later stated that he noticed that Houdini seemed to have in some sunken eyes and his skin appeared to have a bit of a yellow tinge to it. Then another student walked in. That man's name was J. Gordon Whitehead, and he had gained entry to Houdini's dressing room by claiming to be returning a book that Houdini had lent him. Whitehead was just overall a bit of a weird guy. For one thing, the other students were in their early 20s, and Whitehead was 32. 
When he walked in, he immediately took over the conversation, demanding to know if it was true that Houdini had claimed to be able to take a punch to the stomach from any man. Houdini was exhausted, but he was still Houdini, and he accepted the challenge. So as he begins to stand up before he could even finish standing, before he could ready himself and flex his abs and prepare, Whitehead sucker punches him. Hard. Three times in a row. And at least four more times on the ground. Houdini, with the wind knocked out of him, reaches up to the hand like and tried to defend himself using all of his energy to stammer. That will do. That will do. What very likely happened is that Houdini, at this time, was beginning to suffer from appendicitis, and the punches aggravated it. He had been suffering from some pain in his stomach for days before, and the sad part is, is that Houdini, if he had gone to the doctor right away, could have been fine. Appendix removal was becoming, at this point, standard practice. It could very easily be done. It was relatively simple, but he hated to cancel shows or let down the crowds of people who would see him. I feel really bad at this point kind of relating to Houdini, especially after the stuff that we talked about for this last week about me not taking care of myself and doing all of my filming. Because for anyone listening here right now, Gabby can roast me. Almost. Okay, I'm just going to have to roast you. Sorry. Okay, so he had a small cold. And I was like, Stephen, every time you get a cold, you get bronchitis, it goes to pneumonia, go to the doctor. No, I have so much to do. I have to do this, 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 this deadline, that deadline. Okay, cool. Days go by. Keep in mind, our daughter got sick after him, got sick, went to the doctor, got antibiotics. The next day, she was perfect. He literally got worse and worse, not sleeping at night, unable to sleep, unable to eat, literally eyes sunken in. Literally, he was up all night coughing and throwing up, refused to go to the doctor. A week later, he hasn't slept in like six days at this point, literally cannot eat or keep food down. Finally goes to the doctor and now he has like three sets of pills to take, which he still is bad at taking. No, I'm taking him. I just I can't take the, the steroid because at night that because keeps me up. He's working all day, not eating. And it's like, bro, go to the doctor. He literally could have saved himself like 10 days of suffering if he had just gone to the doctor. And everyone's like, just take time off. Just take time off. And he's like, you didn't no. have to take time off. You could have just gone to the doctor, gotten meds, kept working. Yeah, you maybe. could have just not died. You almost died. Yeah. No, I didn't almost die. No. Do you think pneumonia would have been a fun time? No, but I also didn't get pneumonia. It was just bronchitis. It's fine. That was literally right there. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe, maybe I understand. All right. But I didn't die. Houdini dies. Okay, that's a little bit of a spoiler. But we're right here at the <laughs> oh very end. And we're talking about it anyway. <laughs> that's awful, Stephen. Yeah, um, Houdini didn't want to disappoint any of the crowds of the people who'd gone to see or who wanted to see him. So he did not cancel the show. He did not go to the doctor. Instead, he performs the next night and the night after that. And after the second night of shows, he actually collapses on the train to the next tour stop. Someone ends up messaging ahead for an emergency surgeon to be ready by the time they reach their next stop. And by the time that they're able to get him to the hospital, though, it's too late. Houdini spent an entire week struggling for his life with the papers around him reporting on every single minor change in his condition as the world waited to see what would happen. And in the end, the greatest escape artist of all time found the one thing that he couldn't escape. Real death. Harry Houdini would die on Halloween, October 31st, 1926. Bess and Dash would keep his memory alive 
impeccably, including Bess holding yearly seances every Halloween in order to try and contact Harry in the afterlife, a tradition that still inspires thousands of seances every Halloween, even to this day. It's kind of ironic, you know, considering the fact that he has inspired so many seances and he hated them. He spent his, a lot of the later part of his life like striving to disprove them and to shame the people that would use these to try and trick others. Bess and Harry had devised a strategy to prove once and for all if the afterlife existed. They devised a secret code that only Bess and Dash would be able to decipher so that they could never be fooled again like they did with the Doyles. Though, ultimately, wouldn't really seem to happen. In the end, the legacy of Houdini is evident in the thousands of magicians that he's inspired. He was the primary inspiration for the greatest of today. You have Penn and Teller, David Copperfield, David Blaine, all of who honor him in their acts in one way or another. He was the original social outcast, the weird guy who liked to pick locks and do crazy things for attention. The young Coney Island magician who would sweep Bess off her feet. The grown man who would challenge anyone to try and restrain him. The elusive American and the pride of Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton, Wisconsin. He was a dutiful son and the grand showman. He was the child of an immigrant and he would become the most successful and entertaining man in the world. And his name will never be forgotten. You're a wizard, Harry. Okay. I just, I'm so sad. That's how he died. That's the thing I'm telling you. Literally Go to, the to a doctor. sucker punch. Literally to a sucker Besties. punch. Yes. I don't, I, I come from a family of doctors. I don't love going to the doctor. I'm always like, oh, what can the doctor do that I can't figure out myself? Because, you know, I come from a family of doctors. I could just call up one of them. But it is so important to go to the doctor. Even if you're not sick, get your yearly exam. There's so many types of cancers that can form no symptoms until it's too late. I'm begging you. At the end of this episode, if you haven't been to the doctor for your yearly blood work, I know it's expensive. I know not a lot of people can afford it. But if you can, do your best. Just go get checked out. Public health reminder from Gabby. You know, try, try. Don't die. Don't die if you don't have to. You know, there's so many other ways to die. Way more fun ways. Go to the doctor. Thanks. And on that note about way more fun ways to die, we're going to end today's episode. Which, no, no, seriously, though, you are giving actually really good advice there. And I am very ashamed of how I was last week because you, you were entirely right. Anyway, that is the end of today's episode. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. Thank you to James Lopez for creating this episode for us to be able to present to all of you about the man, the myth, the legend, Harry Houdini. I look forward to seeing you all for the next episode, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. Goodbye, my hoes. Bye, and don't forget to send in your family histories because we don't have a ton of those right now. Yep. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.